chapter 13, verse 1. It says that there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The passion past passage begins with the narration of Luke commenting on the season in which these things took place. It says that it was during that season that some came to him. And the season that we find ourselves in as we follow the ministry of Jesus is that we are descending into Passion Week or the final uh, um, days before he will go to the cross and be crucified. These chapters and teachings that we're finding in these chapters take place within the last weeks or at most months of his three and a half year long ministry as he makes his way to the cross. And he's going currently from the Galilee region in the north. And he's working his way through the towns and villages southern, southernward on his way to Jerusalem where he will ultimately uh, take up the cross and die. So it's along the way while he's moving through those villages that these two things take place. Now it tells us that while he's on his way there, he is met by some who give to him kind of a, a warning about an event that had taken place in recent history. And that is that Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea and a very violent man, a Roman appointed governor who was at odds and enmity with the Jews that were there, that he had at one point seen some of the Galileans, those from the northern region, who had come down into Jerusalem in order to worship and to sacrifice. And for whatever reason, we are not told whether it was that he sensed in them a rebellion or an uprising, or whether it was that he was just seeking to flex his muscles and had the authority and the ability to do it. But for some reason, he decided at that time not just to slay them, but to slay them while they were worshiping in the very act of offering their sacrifices in such a way that he mingled some of the blood of these worshipers with the sacrifices and offerings that they themselves were bringing to him. And so whether it was to make a statement or to instill fear, Pilate went ahead and he did this, killing them and mingling this. Now, the people, they see Jesus. And they see that he's making his way from the Galilee region in the north and he's moving towards Jerusalem where ultimately he will make the ultimate sacrifice. And seeing the crowds of people that are with him and seeing the influence that he had and hearing the rumors concerning the fact that he may be the king of the Jews that came to set them free from Roman bondage, some of them think, you could be getting yourself into a little bit of danger by moving in this direction and you might find yourself having the same problem that these worshipers had from the Galilee. Pilate may want to kill you. 
Now, Jesus hears these words that these people give to him. And not only is he unmoved by them, but he doesn't even reply to it. He replies to something totally different. He he takes it as an opportunity to point out something that's of eternal value, not just to those that were hearing him then, but also to us that are hearing him today. He doesn't say, oh my, I hope that doesn't happen, or don't worry about it. My father's got this. But rather he looks at them and he thinks for a moment and he replies in a totally different manner. And he says this, he says, do you suppose that these Galileans who were killed by Pilate, that they were persecuted and ultimately executed because they were sinners above the other Galileans? Is that what you think is happening here? That this tragedy that took place in these lives happened because of their sin and the things that were in their heart? And so Jesus addresses and answers the question that is tragedy in a life the consequence of sin in a life? And in so doing, he addresses one of the great mysteries of life. It's something that all of us have wondered and thought about from time to time. That when bad things happen or when tragedy comes into our life or into someone else's life, is it because of something that I did wrong? That I'm simply getting what I have coming to me? We all see tragedy, whether it's in our own lives or in others. I read an article today in the news about a a family with four children who uh, just in a period of six days lost both parents. First, they lost their mother while they were on vacation and exploring ice caves and a chunk of ice just broke off and struck the mother and she died right there, right in front of her children. And then six days later, their father, who was uh, out to eat at a cafe or a bar and he got into an argument with someone and he was shot and killed on the spot. And within six days, this family, four kids, they lost both parents. And we look at a tragedy like that and we say, why? Why is that happening? Or something very similar to what happens in our text. Just a number of weeks ago in Charleston, South Carolina, a young man comes into a prayer meeting in a church and filled with hatred, he kills nine people that were there, including the pastor. We look on at that and we say, these people are worshiping just like these Galileans. And the question always abides within us is that why do these things happen and jesus says do you think that when these things happen it's just payback is that what's happening here and he answers the question very pointedly very clearly the answer is no that's what he says he says nay that's king james for no that that's not the reason why bad things happen the bible teaches us in the book of job that bad things happen to good people The Bible says of Job that he loved righteousness and hated evil. And yet even though he loved righteousness and hated evil, we see that he lost everything. Everything but his life and his wife, who was telling him that he should curse God and die because of the things that were happening to him. Everything went wrong for that man. And it had nothing to do with something sinful that was going on that God was seeking to uh, repay or revenge. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, addressed this as well. He said this. He said that the sun shines on the just and on the unjust. And then he said that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Now, both the sun and the rain can be either good or bad, depending on when and where the application of those things is, right? And both of them happen to all. And what Jesus is saying there in the sermon is that things happen in this life and bad things happen in this life. And that the reason they happen is because of this life. 
It's not because of the bad things that we have done. However, sin, the Bible says, itself does have a consequence. Though the tragedy that comes is not the consequence of sin, sin itself still does have a consequence. And Jesus is careful to address that and bring that up in the teaching here. He says, do you think that they were sinners above everyone else? No, but I tell you that except you repent, that you shall all likewise perish or die. And the consequence for sin in the life of a person ultimately is death. And whether that death comes through Herod mingling the blood with sacrifices or those that fell under the weight of the tower in Siloam, whether it be someone who dies of old age, of natural causes that lives a full life, that unless the sin issue is addressed, they all share a common destiny and one didn't get less than the other because their life was cut short by some tragedy. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And therefore, if the sin issue is not addressed in the life of any human being, then where they will ultimately find themselves is in the place of death, and they will uh, have to deal with that consequence. Now, just as there was a division between the Romans and the Jews, thus Pilate and, and, and the Galileans, there was also as much of a division internally between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews that were up in the Galilee region. They didn't get along with each other. Remember when Peter was before, uh, you know, when Jesus was dying and, and the young girl accused him and said, you were with Jesus. She said, your speech betrays you. You're a Galilean. And there was animosity. There was a racial tension that existed between those that were in the southern regions of Jerusalem and those that were in the northern regions of the Galilee. And so just in case this group of people that are coming to Jesus at this time are trying to stick it to the Galileans, Jesus gives them a second example. He says, or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell. Siloam was a district in the southeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus says it wasn't just the Galileans that suffered under Pilate, but there was also 18 in Jerusalem upon whom a tower fell. And do you think that they were sinners above the Galileans or the other Jews that were in Jerusalem? And Jesus says no and gives them the same answer that except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, what's interesting to me in this passage, what Jesus says to these people is that the prerequisite for salvation and forgiveness in this is not the cross. He doesn't say unless they come to the cross, they will all likewise perish. He doesn't say, except they believe in me and the sacrifice that I'm offering, they shall all likewise perish. No, he hangs salvation and its contingency upon repentance. And he says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, the word repent means to change your mind. It means that you've been thinking a certain way and operating within a certain course of life, but now you've been awakened to a greater truth or you've seen things in their proper perspective and you're able to evaluate life and its value and you're going to change your mind from the course that it's presently in into something else, something other, something different. That's what repentance is. And in the context of the Christian life, every one of us, every human being that ever lived is born into this world with sin in our hearts. 
We're born under the power of the darkness of this world. We're born into what Paul calls the course of this world, and we're under the authority of the prince of this world, whom the Bible, Jesus and Paul, calls Satan himself. And thus every one of us walks through this world with a certain mindset, living a certain way, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. But at a certain point, the conviction of that way of life comes into our heart that it ultimately will lead to death. And God is faithful to every person, whether it be through their conscience, or whether it be through the testimony of creation, or whether it be through the preaching of the gospel that someone will hear. God awakens every heart to the reality that there's another way. And he calls every man and woman to consider and to repent. Jeremiah chapter 6, the prophet said, stand in the ways. That means stop for a minute and consider and ask for the old paths wherein is the good way and you'll find rest for your souls. Stop, consider, and repent. And to try to walk through this life and think that somehow we can just accept Christ and bring him into the course of life that we are already living and think that we're going to be saved without turning from the course of life that we're in, walking after the sins of our flesh, is to deceive ourselves. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. He has taken us out of a life and he's placed us into a new life and that requires a change of everything that we think, everything that we know, and everything that we do and believe in. We're yielding everything that we are from what we were to what we now are in Christ Jesus. And that's what it means to repent. And without repentance, the testimony of God to us is that you will all likewise perish. You cannot blend the course of this world and the course of Christ. They are completely separate paths. One is broad and leads to destruction. The other is narrow and leads to life. And so the call to repentance. Now, Jesus goes on from there and he gives a parable connected to that statement that he just made. It says in verse six, it says that he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came and he sought fruit thereon and he found none. And then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? It's taking up precious nutrients from the soil, but it's not bearing any fruit. And a fig tree serves one purpose to bear fruit. And if it's not bearing fruit, then take it away. And so he answered and he said unto him, Lord, leave it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. I want to aerate the soil a little bit. I want to fertilize this tree because I have hope for this tree. I don't think it's a lost cause. And if we tear it down, we have to start over. So let's aerate the soil. We'll fertilize it. And let's see if we give it one more year. And then verse nine, it says, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, you shall cut it down. So Jesus gives this parable connected with the exhortation and the call to repentance that he just made in the first five verses. In the parable, the fig tree in the Bible always speaks of Israel as a nation. Every time you see it, from Genesis to Revelation, the reference of the fig tree is compared to Israel. Sometimes in the Old Testament very clearly, and then sometimes figuratively or in parabolic form. The man in the parable who planted the tree and now visits to see how it's doing is Jesus himself. And the vine dresser is probably in the parable either the father or the spirit. 
In John chapter 15, the Bible calls the father the vine dresser. You are, or um, I am the vine and my father is the husbandman or the vine dresser. But the spirit also, who is part of the triune Godhead, he's the one that cultivates fruit within our lives. And so what you see here in this parable is you see a conference taking place between the three members of the Trinity. The son is the owner of the vineyard and the one who planted the tree. The one who's saying, where's the fruit? Cut it down. And you have the father or the spirit saying, you know what? Let's give it another chance. Let's fertilize it. Let's aerate it. And let's see if we can bring some forth some fruit in this whole thing. And then the three years that Jesus refers to in the parable, most likely refers to the three years that he has now spent with Israel as a nation. And so Israel, the nation is visited by Jesus himself, the one who planted the tree. And he comes seeking fruit on that tree and he finds absolutely no fruit at all. And what he's doing is he's issuing a warning to them as a nation that he's come seeking fruit and he's finding none. Now, granted, there were thousands of individual people that had put their trust in him, that were following with him and that gave him their allegiance. But as an entity and as a whole, and proportionately to the, you know, the amount of people following with Jesus, proportioned with the whole vast population of the land, it was a very small number of people that were receiving Jesus in the office that he was coming to them as. Now, what's the fruit that Jesus was seeking to see in them? At this point, it's the fruit of repentance. That's what he just spoke to them about. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, when John the Baptist was preaching to the nation and preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. He spoke to them and he said, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Or bring forth, you could say, in other words, the fruit of repentance within your lives. That if you're truly following Christ and truly believing in who he is, then the very first fruit that should spring forth upon the branches of your vine is the fruit of repentance. The fact that you have turned your heart and your mind from the course of this world to now the course of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to realize that when God looks at our lives individually, he's looking for fruit within our lives. It's interesting, isn't it, to consider that just as Jesus came and visited the nation looking for fruit, he does the same thing with us. He looks at our lives and he says, where's the fruit within your life? And I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves from time to time. Is there fruit of repentance? Is there any evidence in my life at all that I've given my life to Jesus Christ? I've made a profession. I might come to church, but have I changed? Has the way I think changed? Is there change taking place in me? Can I look at my life in Christ a year ago and look at it today and track the things that God has done? I'm not complete. I'm not perfect, but I can see the fruit of change taking place. I can see the fruit of God's spirit growing in me. There's more love than there used to be. There's more peace than there used to be, more patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. I'm growing in those things and the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in my life. I'm also encouraged in this passage by the patience of God as he works with us. That he doesn't immediately cut down the tree because it's gone three years with no fruit. God's not divided against himself. It's not like there's an argument going on here. You know, Jesus saying, I want it cut down. Bring the excavator. And the father's going, calm down, Jesus. Just give it a chance. Wait, be paid. No, no, no. They operate as one. They're evaluating and saying no fruit. But it's interesting. It's the father and the spirit that are looking at them and saying, hey, wait, let's aerate. 
Let's cultivate, let's fertilize, let's invest, let's pour out, and let's see if through our gentleness and our goodness we can bring forth fruit within this life. And so this parable given that God is looking for fruit. Well, he moves from there and it says then in verse uh, 10, it says that, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity or weakness for 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift herself up or bent double is what it literally would mean, meaning that there was a condition, something happening within her spine, wherein as much as she tried to look up or straighten herself, she absolutely could not do it. And here it's associated with a spirit that was within her life. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and he said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. The word loose there, it means fully set free what Jesus said to her. You are fully set free from this weakness that has caused this condition to come upon your life. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation or wrath. He's angry because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine the audacity of that? Someone came to church with a need. That need was met. Can, can you imagine the, the gall of a man that would meet someone's need on the Sabbath day? And so he said to the people, there are six days. He doesn't even address the criticism towards Jesus. He says to the people, he lays it on them. There are six days in which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So, so wait, on the days there's no service and no preacher, no healer, you want us to... Okay, uh, all right, we're following the logic. And so Jesus answered him, and he said, You hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose, circle that word, it's a common word, his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to the watering? If you have animals in your barn and you see that they're parched and dried, you don't leave them tied up tied to their post or in their stall in their barn, you lead them out. Everyone lets them out, even on the Sabbath day. It's not even considered work to to untie your your ox or your donkey to to go away to watering. And so if you do that for your animals, verse 16, ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, so much greater than a donkey or an ox, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, shouldn't she be loosed? Same word that Jesus used for the donkey or the ox from this bond on the Sabbath day. So logical. Don't you love the reason, the wisdom of Jesus? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed and all the people rejoiced for the glorious things that were done by him. Now, the question I have as I consider this passage and I look at what just took place in this interaction between Jesus and this ruler of the synagogue uh, that was there in Israel, as I consider the great distance the great divide that exists between what things were like in the days of Solomon when the temple was first established and the worship of God was established and the people of God were established in the land, the difference between those days and the days here in the passage before us. It tells us in the days that Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord, it says that the Shekinah glory of God descended upon it like a cloud. It says that the presence of God was so thick in that place that even the priests, the ministers, couldn't stand up, that they were 
face down, prostrate to the ground because of the glory of God, the overwhelmingness of his love and of his goodness and of, of his power that was there and that was present and of his answering of Solomon's prayer and of his, his grace that he had bestowed upon his people and the realization that they came to of all that God had brought them through and bringing them to that time. And his presence was so tangible and so real and his, his grace was experienced. It was like water flowing upon the people of God in those days. And the result of it is that the heart of the people was lifted to God. And, and there was genuine revival that was taking place in their midst. There was prosperity in the land that every man dwelt debt-free in prosperity underneath his vine and his fig tree. And, and the people rejoiced in God. And it was a time like no other in all of Israel. But then we fast forward to the days that are here. It's the same land. It's the same people. They're worshiping the same God. But how did we get to a point where now a woman who has an infirmity, who's a daughter of Abraham, is being scolded because she comes to, 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 to church, literally, and she's healed by Jesus on that day? How do you get from the one place and all the way down to the other? And that's exactly the question that Jesus addresses as he responds further to the people that were gathered there in the synagogue. Notice what he says in verse 18. It says, Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden. And it grew and it waxed a great tree. It grew up until it became a great tree and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. So he tells this first parable concerning a mustard seed, and he explains that that mustard seed waxes into a great tree and that the birds of the air come and rest in it or lodge in it. Then he kind of ends the parable right there, and it's almost puzzling if you don't understand what he's saying in the context. Well, first of all, the first thing that would strike the, the ears of the hearers, though, in that agrarian land where they were familiar with the mustard tree, is that the mustard tree is not a tree at all. It's just a bush. It's an herb. A mustard plant grows to be between four and eight feet at the most, sometimes maybe 10 feet it would reach, but hardly the picture of a great tree that the birds would flock to and come into right, right there and, and lodge in its branches. The branches of a genuine mustard tree would just bow down under that kind of weight. It wouldn't be a good place for a bird at all to rest and find sanctuary. And so what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven will become something that has growth that is beyond what is natural. That the growth or the expression of one particular plant will grow so big that it will be beyond what was intended by God from the beginning. Now, before you get the wrong idea in your mind, this doesn't mean that the church or that the synagogues or the temple were necessarily meant to be small little plants dispersed all around. That's not the point. The point is that they're not supposed to grow bigger than what God intended. The first church in Jerusalem was 3,000 people on the first day, and then it became 5,000 people. And that was by design. That was God's intent. It's what he made it to be. But ultimately, it did grow beyond the boundaries of what God intended it to be, and thus problems began. Birds within the parables are always given in a negative or bad or evil context. There's a, um, a principle that is used when you're interpreting scripture. It's called expositional constancy. And you might remember that just because it kind of flows off the tongue. But if you don't, don't worry about it. But remember what it means. Here's what it means. And God did this for us 
to help us is that when something in the Bible is specifically told that it means something, then it will always mean that throughout the whole Bible. God doesn't change context. So in one place, birds are good, but then in another place, birds are bad. If God says birds are bad in the Bible, then when you see birds, it should always trigger in your mind that there's something not right about what I'm reading right here. And Jesus, when he interpreted the parable of the sower in Mark's gospel, he said, and in Matthew's and Luke's gospel, he said that the birds are the enemy that comes in and steals the seed. And so the birds in this parable are not a good thing. So we have supernatural growth that provides a place for a bad thing to come and rest within its branches. And here's what Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is like. That it will become so big that unrepentant and evil people will be able to find refuge in it. And they'll be able to hide out and find a place to ease their conscience, though they are unrepentant of their actions. It's similar to the parable that Jesus gave concerning the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. There was healthy wheat that was planted by God, the true and the genuine. But then there was weeds that were sown by the enemy among them to corrupt and defile the crop. Same picture, same idea. And Jesus says, that's what it's going to be like. Well, here's what happens, is that the church or the kingdom, it becomes so vast and expansive that an evil influence can lodge in it. And that's where corruption begins. Because once an evil influence can find rest pretty soon, that evil influence will begin to have influence over the rest of the people. And that's the idea behind the second parable that Jesus gives immediately following verse 20. It says, and again, he said, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened or yeasted. Now, the measure that Jesus is speaking of would be 20 pounds. So three measures would be 60 pounds. This is a feast. I mean, this is 60 pounds of meal. And it says that she mixes in yeast into it. We all know what happens if you put yeast into a, a, you know, a batch of bread dough that's been kneaded up. The yeast will begin to expand. It will begin to reproduce and it will spread its influence throughout the entire batch of the dough. And here's the effect that that yeast will have is that it will begin to rot the elements that make up that lump of dough. It will begin to break down and create gases that will cause the dough to expand and rise to two, sometimes three or four times, depending on the amount of yeast and the type of dough and the conditions uh, you know, in the atmosphere at that particular place, it'll grow to three or four times what it was initially needed out to be because of the influence of the leaven. Again, leaven, expositional constancy, always spoken of in a negative context. Galatians chapter five, verse nine, it says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump in the context of if we allow evil among us, then be sure that that evil is gonna, be, is gonna spread. So here's the idea, what Jesus is saying, is that it's gonna happen that kingdom things are gonna become so big, supernaturally big, that evil things can hide in them and that evil things can then have an influence in them and that evil influence will ultimately unchecked bring rot to the entire thing. And that's exactly what had happened to Israel between the days of Solomon and the days wherein now Jesus is walking amongst the people. 
they had become so big and the influence of evil had become so pervasive that not only are they missing Jesus, but they've lost total touch of who God is and what he's all about within their midst. Another interesting thing about risen dough, although it looks really big, do you realize that it actually has less substance and weighs less than what it originally did? Think about it. It looks to be so much bigger, but in actuality, it has less value. And I wonder how often God looks at a church and and from the eyes of men, we say, look how big it is. Look how glorious it is. Look at how expansive, how much it's grown. But God looks at it and he says, you know what? It's got a whole lot less weight than it did at the beginning. So what does a movement of God, whether it was Israel then or an expression of the church today, what does an expression of God do when there's leaven or birds because things have gotten so big? It has two choices. It can either repent and come back to the purity of what God initially intended it to be, not necessarily cut the size, but raise the standard. Or that church can carry on in its course that it's going and God will allow it to eventually fall under the weight of its own rot and he'll begin a new work and plant new trees in other places. That's what we've seen God do throughout the history of the church. He'll birth a movement. It'll grow up. It'll become expansive. It'll ultimately have a little leaven in it. The leaven will leaven the whole lump. And over a course of 50 or 100 or 200 years, it will ultimately collapse into the weight of its own distance that it's created between itself and God. And God will start something new. And thus has been the path. It doesn't have to be that way. If there would be repentance, we could see God do a fresh work again. I believe we're in a place in the United States of America today where we desperately need an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit again. Would to God that he would give us the kind of penitent and humble hearts that would allow him to move in the way that he is wanting to move in the days that we are in. Verse 22, it says that he went then through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And so then one said unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? So evidently they're walking along and this man that's walking with Jesus sees that perhaps at this time the crowds are beginning to thin out. The intensity of Jesus' teaching has increased for certain in the radicalness of the things that he said. His eyes are set towards Jerusalem and he's talking about the cross. And as this man considers all that Jesus is saying, and the fewer and fewer there are that are following, he looks at Jesus and he asks the question, he says, Lord, are there just a few that will ultimately be saved one day? And Jesus answers the questions. He said unto them, he said, strive to enter in at the straight gate or the narrow gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut to the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Now, this is a very interesting passage, isn't it? He asks the question, are there few that be saved? And Jesus replied to him is this. He says, strive. The word in the Greek is agonize. To enter in at the straight or the narrow gate. And here's why. Because there will be many that will seek to enter in and will not be able to. Now, that interests me. Why is it that they will not be able to? It is not because they are uninvited. Because the gospel is to whosoever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him 
That's the whosoever. Whosoever is thirsty is the final call in Revelation chapter 22. Whosoever is thirsty, let him come and drink freely of the water of life. So it isn't a matter of invitation. It isn't a matter of access that they can't get to the door. And it isn't a matter that they can't find it because as soon as the door is shut, notice they all find it. As soon as it's shut, they're all knocking on it saying, hey, can I get in now? So it isn't that they don't know what the way is. It isn't that they're uninvited. So what's the issue why many will seek to enter in and they won't be able to? Jesus gives the answer, verse 26. He says, then shall you you begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in your presence and you you have taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Do you see that? You see, these people, they even were members of churches. They said, Lord, we've eaten in your presence. We've had communion at your table. Lord, we've heard the teachings. We know the truth concerning your kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, it even says that they will say, we've taught. There's people that have taught and served God that will be in this company that say, Lord, what do you mean you're not allowing me in? You're not taking me into your kingdom. And the reply of Jesus will be this. It isn't that you weren't invited. It isn't that you didn't have access. It isn't that I didn't, wouldn't receive you. It isn't that you didn't know the way. Here's the issue. is that you would not repent of your sins. You're workers of iniquity and you've put your hope in something but you didn't hear the whole message and you weren't willing to put down the things that my word says are profane and allow me to come into your life and change those things that are vile affections within you so that you can be saved. And he says, it's not an issue of access and it's not an issue of grace. It's an issue of you were not willing and it's a narrow way. And so here's what happens is that you approach the narrow door and every person that ever lives will approach the narrow door sometime in their life. And they will come with all the baggage of their past life, all of their addictions, all of their passions and affections, all of the things that they love in this world because every one of us has passions and things that we love in this world. And every single one of us will try in some way to walk through that narrow way with that backpack upon our back with those suitcases in our hands or with that clothing on our backs. And as we try to go through that door, the things that we're trying to carry in will not pass through with us. And so we'll shed one or two of them. Okay, Lord, will you say that I can't be drunk with wine? And so I'll put that down, Lord. I'm come through again. And he says, it's still not going to work. And we put down another. And he says, strive to enter in. Listen, when you come into the kingdom of God, you come with nothing. It's a complete laying down of the life and saying, God, you are Lord of all and I want you to have access to every part of my heart and there's not one cupboard, drawer, or cranny in all of it that I will keep for myself. It is all yours. Now listen, that doesn't mean that walking through the door, we have instant sinless perfection. It absolutely does not. What it is, is a willingness. We hand him the keys, we lay the burdens down, and we walk through the door. Now coming through it, what we find is that those affections are still attached to us. That those weights so often, they still pull at us, they still nag at us, they tempt us to come back. But if we're sincere in our repentance towards the Lord, we've changed our mind, then that allows his spirit to come into our lives and one by one, he begins to remove those things from our affection list and he places them upon his cross and we walk with him. But if we resist and say, God, I will give you all but this, 
then you have not entered in at the narrow gate. And Jesus says, I will say to them there, depart from me, I do not know you, you workers or practicers of iniquity. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. It's an interesting thing to consider that those that are in hell and experiencing the torment can either see or they have an awareness of those that are in heaven and the glory of what they're experiencing and rejoicing. And then Jesus answers the second part of the question, or he answers the same question in the second part. It says, And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. In other words, the answer to your question is there are many that will be saved. It isn't that there will be few that will be saved. There will be many that want to be saved, but aren't because they won't repent. But there will be many from the north and the south, from the east and from the west that will come and will sit down in the kingdom of God, that receive the terms of the gospel and receive of my grace. And he says this, verse 30, and behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Now that's an interesting thing. Here's why. Because Jesus at that time was talking to Jews who by and large rejected him. They said no to his offer and his plea of salvation, and thus they were not entering in at the narrow gate. However, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was born, and the gospel went out of Jerusalem to the Gentiles, then multitudes from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west for the past 2,000 years from today have been entering in to the kingdom of God, coming through the narrow way. But the Jews, by and large, those to whom the gospel was first preached, those that were first, They've rejected, they've become blinded so that they're not entering in at present. But the Bible says that when the church age is complete and God takes us to heaven, when the rapture happens, that he will open the eyes of Israel. And at that time, 144,000 Jewish evangelists will go through the world and there'll be a great ingathering of Jews that put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the first, which were the Jews, will be last because they'll get saved after the church is gone. And the last, which is the church, will be first because we were, we were received into the kingdom ahead of time. So Jesus says, hey, it's to you first. And that's what Paul said, Romans 1.16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentile. But the Gentiles enter in first because they receive. Well, it says that the same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, get thee out and depart hence for Herod will kill thee. So this time it's not Pilate mingling the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. But now it's Herod, the Tetrarch, who was the kind of the governor of the Galilee region. And as Jesus is making his way through those villages, some of the Pharisees bring this veiled threat. In fact, it's a bold threat. And they say, Herod's going to kill you. Get out. Get out of our coast. Well, Jesus, again, unmoved. It says that he said unto them, go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Now, this was not three days away from the cross. He spends at least a week in Jerusalem. And in fact, in the next verse, he's going to say, I'm not in Jerusalem yet. I can't even die. He'll spend a week in Jerusalem. So he's not three days from the cross. This is probably a veiled reference to the crucifixion 
and, and then the resurrection that will take place three days later. He says, nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Jesus says, Herod does not call the shots concerning when I come and when I go in this world. I am under the banner of my father's protection and I will be here for exactly as long as he wants me here. And then my life will be laid down according to what he has prescribed, not to what the Gentiles will. And then he turns his attention to Jerusalem that he just referenced saying that a prophet cannot perish outside of Jerusalem. And considering where he's going and what he will accomplish there, his heart is filled with lamentation. And he says this, verse 34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stones them that are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does gather her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. It's an interesting picture. Because Jesus laments over Jerusalem, calling out twice to them. Jerusalem means city of peace. And he addresses it as the house of his people. And what he's saying to them is he's saying, listen, this is my will for you. My will for you is that you would dwell at peace. My will for you is that you would have life and that you would have it more abundantly. My will for you is that you would know me and know the expression of my grace and my goodness and all that I want to bestow upon you. But because of your refusal to recognize and to repent and to receive, the result of that is that your house is left to you desolate. And so in place of peace that you should be experiencing, instead the experience is desolation and woe. I wonder how many times Jesus looks over a group of people, whether it be in any particular given place out in the world, whether it be a, a congregation of those that profess to have faith in him, And he looks at that person, he looks at their life and he says such a similar thing over it. He looks at you or he looks at me and he says, peace, my will for your life is that you would have peace. My will for your life is that you would have good, that you would eat from the good of the land, the fat of the land. But because you're unwilling to repent and to consider and stand and look at the way that your life has been going in this world, look at who you've been following and what's been important in that following. And instead of following after that, Put your faith upon me. Because of that, where you could have peace, instead your life is filled with desolation. Everything that you look at over your path, you look behind you, in, in, the rear, in the windshield you look in front of you and everything is green and glorious and hopeful. But you look behind you and you see that everything is just a barren wasteland. And your whole life has been that way. Would to God that we would know the peace that he desires to be at. We should be at peace, but we're desolate because of a lack of of repentance. I begin to see a common thread between the things that Jesus is saying and the things that are happening between him and his, his relationship with his people in this place. It's a call to repent. What is, as we close, the fruit of repentance? See, he came to them seeking fruit upon the tree and it says that he found none. What is the fruit that repentance brings within a life? If you and I would bring ourselves to a place where we'd be willing to humble ourselves and repent, what would happen? What would be the result of that? Well, the very first thing that would happen right off the bat is that there would be cleansing. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. It says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us 
and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Last weekend, Georgia and I and the kids went up to the Adirondacks to camp with um, her parents for just a couple of days. And that's stressful with five kids and fun. And it's a great time and builds great memories. But one of the things that happens to you when you camp for a couple of days is that you get extremely dirty and you smell really bad. And and it's not like you can just go, you know, you kind of get in the lake and you think, all right, well, that did it for the day, you know, <laughs> and it kind of just seals the stink in a little. And it just, it, you just kind of get to that point and your clothes are kind of like stuck to you, like cling wrap, you know, and your socks are like pasted to the bottom of your feet, you know, and the soles of your, you get the idea. It's just not a pleasant place to be. And we've all kind of been there um, from time to time within our lives. But then you go to the shower house, you know, once in the whole time, you know. And you, and you get clean. And you come out of there and you just feel so alive. You feel completely different than you did when you went in. And it's like, oh man, I can, I can run again you know, and start over this whole cycle and the whole thing. But sometimes that happens to us, doesn't it? Even in the Lord. Is that we walk for a while and we grow distant from the Lord. Our prayer lives wax cold or things creep back into our lives that at one time there was victory over a distance at least. And we find ourselves defiled and separated when we come back to the Lord in repentance. Or maybe you've never repented, never in your life of sin, and all you ever know is the grime and filth of walking through this world. Well, I can tell you this, is that when you come to a place of repentance, you say, God, I'm a sinner, and I need to be washed of my sins, and I believe in your cross that takes away the guilt and the stain of it, and I'm willing to give my life to you. The very first thing that happens is that there is a cleansing that takes place upon the whole life. The body, the soul, and the spirit is cleansed because he is faithful and just to not only to forgive our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I don't think that there's a greater feeling of freedom that exists in all the world than to have the Lord wash you from your sins and to take it away. And it's the fruit of repentance. The second thing that happens when we repent and the fruit of it is that we immediately feel a time of refreshing and revival from the Lord. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, when Peter was preaching the gospel to a group of Jews in Jerusalem, he said, repent of your sins so that when the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord, you might experience it. And when there's a repentance in our lives and we come to God for cleansing and we say, God, wash me of these things, there's something that happens where his living water and the presence of his Holy Spirit floods through that life and there's a time of immediately revival. We find that his word comes back to life. Our prayer life takes off again. The joy that has grown cold comes back in and our hearts begin to soften and there's a refreshing. And then the third thing that happens is that there's revival. That famous verse in Second Chronicles chapter 7, uh, verse 14, where God says that if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will come, and I will heal their land. Four things that God says that he asks of his people, that if they will come to me, that if they will pray, if they will seek my face, and if they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will come, and I will revive their land. And I believe that today, as much as any day in the past uh, 2,000 years of church history, God is wanting to pour out his spirit 
in a very powerful way within the world. I believe that he wants to revive his church. And I know for a fact that he wants to save the lost. And so often the thing that hinders and restricts God is that we become so puffed up and so proud in who we are as a people. We think that we're so right before God that we quench his Holy Spirit with our pride. The Bible says that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. The Bible says that that which has begun, he will be faithful to complete until the day of Jesus Christ. God wants to work within the world. So why isn't he? I believe where it begins is with us in here right now. The people of God, that we would look inward and we would say, God, where in my life have I allowed the things of the world to reattach themselves to me? God, where in my life have maybe I self-deceived my own heart into believing that I'm in you and that I'm right with you just because I made a profession or raised my hand or was raised a certain way. But God, perhaps there's things in my life tonight that if I would expose my heart to you, you would immediately shine your searchlight on and I would hear the still small voice whisper to me and say, repent. And I can tell you this, Christian, because I experience it myself, is that when it is that we turn our hearts completely to God in humility and with prayer and with repentance, the things that he is wanting and willing to do are so incredibly powerful and there's no limit to it. And it's the greatest need that we have in our world today. And I believe that the word of the Lord for you and me tonight is repent. Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you give to us. We thank you, Lord, for how you can speak through words that were said so long ago. For you said my word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And Lord, tonight we sense that your word, like arrows, is going into our hearts. And we sense tonight, Lord, that there's such a great need within each one of us. And Lord, as a group, collectively, we can feel our hearts inside of our chest like wax that's wax cold. And tonight, Lord, we need for you to refresh us and revive us. Tonight, Lord, we need your cleansing. Tonight, Lord, we need your restoration. We need the sovereign hand and working of your Holy Spirit to bring us back to you. And so we ask, Lord, that your spirit would rise up within this place. That your light would shine upon our hearts. And that you would bring us to a place, Lord, where not only are we in the narrow gate and know that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but where you can do in our lives and through our lives the things that you've been willing and wanting to do for so long. So Lord, I pray that even as we lift our voices to heaven in singing this last song, that the condition of our heart would be that of penitence. That tonight our offering would not be songs sung from a fake heart, feigned lips. But you said, him that is broken and of a contrite spirit I will not despise. And so may you bring that forth from us. And may we be completely consecrated unto you. For you're worthy to have every part of our heart and every part of our life. So do your work here in our midst tonight, O God. For it's to you that we desire to be consecrated.
and to bear fruit and to bring glory. In Jesus' name, amen.